You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. Uh, in, stuck in lockdown Sydney, as I guess the majority of Sydney is, uh, but let's not talk about that. We've got a great guest on our podcast and apparently, uh, well, well, I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> you really wanted to tell everyone, didn't you? But I get to do that. Um, yes, Chris Bowen, Opposition Energy and Climate Spokesman, is our guest today. And um, well, I think we should just go straight into the interview. Here's Chris Bowen. Chris Bowen, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Great pleasure, Giles. Long time listener, first time caller. Well, thank you very much. Three years ago, Scott Morrison, then Treasurer, um, smuggled a lump of coal into Parliament and weighed it about. Um, I presume he might have put it in his pocket or something or in his briefcase if he's allowed to bring one of those in. Um, Last month, you brought in a bigger object. It was a solar panel. How did you manage to get that past the Sergeant at Arms? Took a bit of practice, Giles, just quietly. I had had it under a a couple of full-scat folders and... um, I had it under my chair during question time. <laughs> um, then had to get it up to the dispatch box, and I did it at the end of a, a fifteen-minute speech. Uh, so then had to sort of push the full, full scat folders out of the way and reveal it. And uh, yes, and I was a little bit worried I was going to drop it in between my seat and the dispatch box, but it, I we got away with it. We got away with it. Um, yeah, any any harsh penalties um, for for such things, or do you just uh, get 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 uh, sort of scolded by the uh, speaker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get um, sat down and sort of put out, but sat I, down. I, I, I think <laughs> at the end of the speech was probably the. You know, but you know, look, I thought it was important just to send the message back to the Liberals and more broadly that you know. Um, uh, that sort of stunt uh, by Morrison with coal, uh, there, is a, there is an alternative narrative and um, they are afraid of renewable energy on the other side. They just are. Um, it, it, there's multiple examples of it which we can talk about, but it, it's prejudice. I, I don't call it ideology because ideology is sort of a consistent framework, even one I might disagree with. You can have conservative ideologies, uh, which I respect, I might disagree. This is just prejudice. There's no sort of consistent logic to it. So they're just prejudiced against renewable energy, and it needs to be said. Why do you think that is so? Look, it's hard to say. I mean, look, to be fair, there are people of good faith on the other side who do get it. Um, but unfortunately, there's enough who just have this prejudice that have effective power of veto over any sensible policy. And some of them are in very senior positions. I mean, you know, Keith Pitt as Resources Minister, uh, Angus Taylor as Emissions Reductions Minister, um, uh, and others, uh, and Canavan, who's on the back bench but is very vocal, they just have enough heft within the coalition just to let this prejudice hold back any sensible policy. Um, I find it very difficult to explain because, you know, they're... I'm not saying they're unintelligent. They just they just got this this mindset against um, renewable energy, uh, which I really can't explain. It's very the politics of it used to work for them. They used to be able to divide. I'm not so sure it works for them anymore. But they just can't change gear. 
Well, we've been wondering about um, that, that, why this is, but look, let's just get on about Labor's messaging then. Uh, we've had Mark, we had Mark Butler on the program several times, and Mark came to the election, well, Labor came to the election last year with some uh, what we thought were very good policies and what many people thought were very good policies. Mark has been um, moved on, he's gone back to health. You've now taken over that portfolio. What do you hope to bring? to this portfolio and this conversation and this policy development um, that Mark was unable to? Oh, look, I wouldn't put it in terms of what Mark was unable to. I mean, Mark had been Shadow Minister for eight years. That's a long spell. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you've done the job for eight years, it is often time for a fresh challenge and a fresh set of eyes. And so it just made sense on a number of levels. Mark and I are very good friends. So I wouldn't put it in terms of what I can do that Mark couldn't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't express it that way. But what I do hope to bring to the job and what I have been attempting to bring to the job since January when I took it on is very much an economic frame. Giles, I think the moral case for action on climate change is won. You know, that that, that, that case is over. Uh, we've won that case. What we haven't won in Australia so far is the economic case for action on climate change and the case that it is in our national interest. Um, you can make the case and we've won the case that it is in the world's uh, interest for us to move. We haven't prosecuted and won the case that is in our national interest. And that's uh, what I'm doing, is, is prosecuting that case that is in our national economic interest to have a strong and ambitious climate change policy. doesn't mean less ambition. Uh, it does mean ev almost everything I do is through that economic frame. Because, look, Giles, if you... Let's just be frank. Um, you know, we need to change the government to get proper action on climate change. These guys just won't do it. And if you're voting on the morality of climate change, you're already voting for a change of government. Uh, if if you're a climate change denier, you're probably not voting for a change of government. And it's very hard to convince those people. But there are a whole bunch of people in the middle who, for whom they, you know, they think climate change is real and they think that um, you know, something should be done about it, but it's not in their top one, two or three issues. Uh, and they are open uh, to have being scared uh, by a scare campaign to say this could cost you your job or your kid's job. Now, we have to win that argument that it is our national interest to act on climate change. It's in our economic interest. It's not just our moral international obligation. It is very much the right thing to do for Australia and for the Australian economy. And, you know, I'm a former treasurer. Uh, I've got an economics uh, academic background, uh, and that's the sort of perspective that I bring. So I've got an uh, economics uh, background and uh, accounting and finance and something of a political background in that my father was a state member of parliament. Yeah. And, and uh, I watched the largest election campaign and saw Labor completely stuff up its climate change message uh, in terms of the marketing of it notwithstanding the policies were okay. And I also read the ANU study after the election, which says that climate change was actually a winner for the government, uh, for the Labor Party, uh, as you've already said. And a lot of things I could ask about, but uh, let me just ask you about how you intend to prosecute the economic case, because it often comes down to jobs. And I've seen, uh, you know, the CFMEU in, in Queensland, for instance, being very anti-climate change or pro-coal mining, just as a, for instance, uh, because they say there are more jobs. But I personally don't think there are many direct jobs in either renewable energy or coal mining. Coal mining employs 50,000. Renewable energy employs the same number, give or take 10,000, compared to like health or professional services. It's next to nothing. So how, how do you make the economic case? Well, I think, David, um, that we make it by pointing out, for example, that 
the world is changing and being honest about that. You know, I do that everywhere I go. I do that on television. I do that when I go into regional Australia and I, and I take the view that I have to take the case where it's hardest. You know, I can hold forums um, of environmental activists in 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 inner city Sydney and, you know, win the argument. That's not where it's hardest. I've got to go into coal mining communities and win it. And I've been doing that. You know, I've been to Emerald. I've been to Gladstone. I've been to your lawn power station. We've got to win the argument where it's hardest, which is and, – and that and that argument is – Look, the world is changing. 70% of our coal is exported. Uh, 70% of that goes to countries who have committed to net zero either by 2050 or 2060. And that is going to impact on coal mining communities. Now, we can pretend it's not happening and just leave those communities on their own until it's too late. Or we can say, look, we're going to continue exporting coal for some time, but your kids are going to have a different job to you and we need to create those new jobs now. And... Uh, the jobs that we can create uh, are of a similar uh, nature to the coal mining jobs or the coal-fired power stations that that we have, i.e. similar metrics in terms of numbers and also similar in terms of skill set. The term just transition is one that used, that people use. It's not a term I use because it, it implies to me that the workers are at the end of the, of the conversation. There's sort of a footnote that we'll get to them later. We're going to transition our economy and we'll retrain. Now, um, if you're an energy worker and you hear retraining or just transition, you think, oh, they're going to get me a job in a cafe or they're going to get me a job in the graphic designer, and that's not me. That's not true. These jobs are a similar skill set. Um, yes, uh, some uh, renewable energy is less labour-intensive, but other, other elements of it are more labour-intensive, including the transfer to storage and hydrogen, pumped hydro, etc. Um, and then there's the flow-on jobs from the, um, you know, the manufacturing we can we can um, uh, instigate. I, I'm an optimist about renewable manufacturing in Australia. You know, David, we've put 60 million solar panels on roofs in Australia in the last 10 years. A tiny sliver of those have been made in Australia. But we'll put many multiples of 60 million on roofs in the next 10 years as we move from effectively one in four houses with solar panels to much closer to four in four we're going, to, we're going to put much more than 60 million uh, solar panels on our roofs. It's unthinkable that we continue to make less than 1% of those in Australia. We're a huge solar market. We have the size, the economies of scale. It adds up to make more in Australia, but we haven't been. And so we have to bring together it's a climate change policy, regional development policy, industry policy, uh, to be able to say to those workers who rely on traditional forms of energy, whether it's directly in coal mining or coal and gas-fired power stations or more indirectly down the train, that these are remarkable opportunities, that the world's climate emergency is Australia's jobs opportunity because we are you know, very well placed. We're, we're, uh, we've got more solar power than, uh, than any comparable country. We've got better than average wind. These are opportunities. And then, and then there's other opportunities through things we haven't done yet, like offshore wind, which is more labour-intensive. It does take more maintenance out there. It does take the ship to get out to the uh, offshore uh, turbine. Uh, it, it is very strong in power generation. You know, Star of the, of the uh, South, whom you've had on your show, you know, that would create 20% of Victoria's energy needs if it was up and running today. So it's, it's very power-intensive, but it's also very labour-intensive. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as a good thing linked to those communities which have powered Australia for so long, uh, and this is an, uh, the other argument we have to win, the, uh, the communities which have powered Australia for so long with cheap and reliable energy of traditional forms are the same areas which will power us into the future because they're the areas with the pipelines, the ports, the railway lines, the space for renewable energy. 
that energy will be generated there and will create those jobs there. And that's the argument we have to tackle head on and win. No, I, I agree with that. I uh, said we've all said, and I'm just going to ask this one more question uh, and then hand back to Giles. So I'll make it a two-part question. Uh, but it's quite obvious that the, the strong wind and the, uh, the hydrogen manufacturing capacity can both uh, just supplement the traditional coal and gas and, and you get the same amount of power and continue to have a global advantage. And maybe if you turn it into hydrogen or do something, you can continue to be export energy to Asia in the way that we've always done, uh, even as, as those uh, countries themselves decarbonise. Uh, I guess my questions are in two parts. Every economist you ever talk to will talk about a, a carbon price as being the most efficient way to do it across the whole economy. Uh, but Labor seems to have given up on that, even though if I was to go back to 2007, I could argue that was maybe the trigger on which really pushed uh, the, the, the Rudd campaign over the line. So that's one question. Why, why abandon the carbon price? Is it just so politically impossible? I mean, Zali Stegall's got a climate change bill in, in Parliament that, you know, was very successful uh, in the UK, a similar model. And my second question um, is, is about 2030 targets. As far as I know, you haven't specifically said anything about that. Committing to 2050 is just like an act of religion. It sort of uh, doesn't really get you anywhere in today's world. Oh, well, David, you said it was a two-parter. I think there's about a six-parter in there. There's a lot in it, but I'll, I'll do my best. And I will try and answer every element that you've raised. Firstly, I agree with you completely on exports. And this is the other optimistic um, uh, story that we need to tell the Australian people and, and energy workers. You know, our opponents like to paint uh, action on climate change as some sort of austerity program that we're going to be cutting back. On the contrary, we're going to have to electrify everything that can be electrified in Australia and transfer the energy generation to renewable and um, and export as well. We're one of the world's largest energy exporters and we can continue to be in a different form, whether it's through Sun Cable or the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, which has hit a, a, a bump, but I'm hopeful that they can overcome that bump. And you don't need me to go through all the export opportunities that that provides, because you're right, we live on, a, on the edge of a region in Southeast Asia, which is going to have some difficulty creating their own renewable energy because of the space constraints. So we have to be very optimistic about that. Now, onto the, the, the nub of your question. Firstly, on carbon pricing. Yeah, you're right. Carbon, uh, an economy-wide carbon price won't be part of our policy, hasn't been part of the policy we've taken the last couple of elections. I was a member of the cabinet that put it on, uh, in Julia Gillard's cabinet. We knew what we were doing. We knew it was a big call. We knew it was going to be politically difficult, but we knew it was the right thing to do for the times. But we then became the only uh, country in the world to impose a carbon price and then repeal it. You don't go back. Um, you certainly don't propose that um, uh, lightly. And I do think we've moved on. I do, I, I do think we no longer need an economy-wide carbon price to achieve the sorts of um, uh, progress that we need what we now need is a sectoral approach, a sector-by-sector -sector approach. So looking at it through uh, transport and it's very, obviously a very strong um, emphasis on EVs going forward, uh, looking at what we do with industry, looking at what we do with agriculture and having a sector-by-sector -sector approach, I think that's now the better model given that where the economy is, given how the cost of renewables has progressed since 2013. It's now almost 10 years ago and we're now looking at a different set of policy levers. On 2030, yeah, you're right, it should not be remarkable that we're the only party of government, um, uh, we're the only party capable of forming a government in Australia which is committed to net zero by 2050. That shouldn't be something that I'm able to boast about. Unfortunately, in Australia it is. 
it is a point of contest. We're the only developed country in the world where the government is not committed to net zero by 2050. So it is a point of contest. So where's the alternative government are? But I fully agree with you. Um, it's not enough. We need a strong roadmap to get there. Uh, you don't start in 2040. Uh, we can't do that. We're going to have to provide a roadmap to get there, and we will. And I'll be you know, providing further details. I haven't announced a 2030 or 2035 um, target uh, yet, um, but we will be providing a strong roadmap. And, but importantly, David, not just the, what we think will be happening in 2030 and 2035, but the policy levers to achieve it. You know, I could announce you know, an 80% reduction uh, by 2030 unless I'd put the policy levers out there which um, are capable of, of credibly being uh, understood to achieve something like that, then we'd be kidding the Australian people and ourselves. So it's got to be all the above. We've started announcing some of the policy levers. We've got more to do. And we'll also be announcing that roadmap to net zero by 2050. Let's just um, hop into those interim targets. And you mentioned 2030, you mentioned 2035. After the last election, um, it was sort of suggested that um, couldn't hold the current or the targets that you took to the last election because time will have elapsed. I presume you get back into power at the next poll either later this year or early next year. Um, so therefore, they have to be recalibrated. The suggestion then, I guess, might have been that you would have lesser time to reach those targets. And um, it's certainly the case that the coalition has done nothing to um, lower emissions in the meantime. However, the science also tells us that we need to be accelerating our efforts um, by 2030. So would it be safe to assume that you're going to come back with stronger targets that you actually had at the last election campaign? Oh, look, um, Giles, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to announce them on, on your podcast as much as I do love your podcast. Um, I, I think the statement that, that, I, that I have made and would continue to make that, you know, 2021 is not 2016 or 2019, and so the targets that we outline then are not necessarily exactly the same as the targets we outline in 2021 holds. I think that's a statement of fact. But also, um, uh, you you take into account uh, what the science, what is happening around the world. I mean, we will have to look at what the government takes um, to Glasgow as well. They are meant to not only commit to net zero by 2050, but they're meant to take a more ambitious approach to to Glasgow than they took to the last COP. Um, we'll see what they do. Um, so there's there's more work to do there. I, I don't I don't dismiss the premise that you put in that question, but all the above can be true. It can be harder to get there if you're starting in 2021 than in 2016 or 2019 if we'd won either of those elections. That's a statement of fact. It would be easier if we'd won those elections. It would be easier to get there by 2030 than starting in 2021 or 2022. I think that's a statement of fact. But also I accept that... Uh, you know, we, we clearly, again, in our national interest, have to be laying out that very strong roadmap towards 2050. At the same time, I guess you could argue that technologies are also helping us because the cost of wind and solar and battery storage have all come down. Battery storage is now better understood. Electric vehicles are nearly upon us. So if there's no targets to be announced on this podcast, very disappointing. Um, perhaps you can tell us more <laughs> about, your, about your policy levers then. You mentioned that you've announced some of them. Um, what, else is, what are they and what else are they to come? So what we've announced so far, uh, just running through them relatively quickly, we've put our some elements of our electric vehicle policy out there. So we've announced our cost element of our electric vehicle, our offering to reduce the cost of EVs. So that is to take the tariff off electric vehicles, the 5% tariff below the luxury car tax threshold. I'm not here to tell you that's the be-all and end-all, but it's it's material. It, it'll take $2,000 off a $50,000 Nissan Leaf. So, you know, if you're looking for a new car, that's material. And then you add that to the state uh, rebates, which we're seeing more and more of. I think now we've got um, 
New South Wales and Victoria um, putting state rebates up for uh, for EVs and Tasmania has a slightly different offering, but they're in the space. It adds up. And then we've got uh, what I think is actually even more powerful is our FBT concession for fleet purchases. So basically, uh, if you're an employer who gives you an employee a car, you don't pay fringe benefits tax if you give them a ute, but you do if you give them um, any other sort of a car in effect. It's a little bit more complicated than that. I'm s- simplifying slightly, but you know, take that as the as the basis of it. So we'd provide the same FPT concession for an electric vehicle as is currently available for a ute. That'll bring $9,000 off the cost of a, a, a of an EV at a um, affordable price. So that is real, uh, that is really significant, I think, because 50% of purchases in Australia are fleet. So that's a real driver. If an employer can get a car $9,000 cheaper, that will really drive behaviour in my view. And that's important not only because of the numbers, but also just the demonstration effect, getting more EVs out there. If a neighbour sees their neighbour pull up with an electric vehicle, which is a company car, and you know they might take it for a spin and see, actually, it does go all right and it can travel a good distance, just in terms of breaking down those misconceptions, I think will be very important. Uh, so that's the cost offering on electric vehicles. Uh, we've got to still look at some of the other elements of our electric vehicle policy. I've said we'll take an electric vehicle strategy to the election, so I'm still working on those other elements. Um, happy to come back to those if you want to, Talk about those. Mm-hmm. And then um, other things we've announced are our community batteries policy. So, you know, I think that we are going to need a massive effort on storage as we move to a much more renewable economy, uh, a renewable energy economy. That's going to require uh, household batteries, grid scale batteries and community batteries. Uh, so we'll fund 400 community batteries across the country. Um, they're already starting to be rolled out in small numbers by... Uh, by uh, distributors and others, um, but I think that'll be a big spur, having 400 federally funded community batteries. Um, we've announced our, our new energy apprentices, which is about the skills that we need if we're going to have a renewable economy and, and do more on energy efficiency. There's There are a lot of skill shortages out there. A lot of solar companies are already um, reporting skill shortages, so we'll pay Apprentices ten thousand um, dollars over the course of their apprenticeship. Uh, ten thousand apprentices, ten thousand uh, dollars, and also we've announced our Rebuilding Australia Fund, and that will have that um, renewable energy manufacturing as one one of its key focuses. So, uh, going back to that point I made about we have to make more of this stuff in Australia if we're to win the argument and deserve to win the argument, and that'll be an element of it. So that's what we've announced so far. Um, more to do, but. Uh, but more renewable energy policy uh, than the government out there by far. Hmm. And, of course, uh, the, and I guess the final one, uh, Giles, is rewiring the nation, which is, um, as you know, as you understand, we're going to have to massively upgrade the grid to get the energy to where we need it. So whether it is, um, you know, you could have a, a solar panel on every every edge of the desert in the wind turbine up and down the Great Dividing Range, unless we've massively upgraded the grid and done the sorts of things in the ISP and other ideas, uh, we won't we won't achieve it. So, uh, twenty billion dollar rewiring the nation fund. And I, I could add to that. I think there's a lot of opportunities in education and software and professional services, which is the fastest area of job growth in Australia. Uh, professional services and you know uh, all this uh, behind the meter stuff uh, provides. You know, there's like inverters and things like that. Uh, that, uh, you know, universities uh, and the scientific community would love a bit of support and uh, the sort of industry partnership that you see in countries like Japan where they decide to go with something. Which brings me to one other quick question, you know, like it seems to me that the federal government uh, at the moment uh, has contributed 
to the sort of uh, fighting at, uh, between the states and the federal government. The federalism within the within the NEM is sort of uh, breaking up. Do you think um, uh, there's probably not a lot of votes in it, but getting the whole industry, the states on side and everyone pulling in the same direction uh, might, in the end, result in lower costs for everyone and a more efficient system? I just wonder how you think about that, if at all. Potentially. I mean, I see it in terms of a broader conversation with the states. I think the states are filling a vacuum at the moment, frankly, um, uh, not just in the NEM uh, with the lack of federal leadership, but just more broadly. And I welcome their involvement. I mean, I think, and I don't play politics on this, I recognise Matt Keane's achievements. Um, uh, uh, he's playing a very constructive role. Um, I recognise the efforts of the Victorian government uh, I recognise Tasmania's government. You know, they're all getting on with it, but they're also filling a void. If we had a national EV approach, we wouldn't have this sort of state-by-state um, state approach so much. Um, you know, Victoria's even put emission standards on the table. Well, the state can't do that with all... You know, I understand why they're doing it, but that's not going to work at the state level. We are going to need some national leadership. So if we do win the election, you know, one of my first... Uh, necessary acts will be sitting down with all my state and territory colleagues and trying to get us all on the same page because um, regardless of partisanship states tend to do uh, tend to be a lot more uh, progressive on these issues every state and territory is committed to net zero by 2050 regardless of party um, but we've got to we've got to all be rowing in the same direction without a national framework national leadership we won't get there can I just get back to targets? Um, last um, time you came with a 50% renewables target by 2030, 50% electric vehicles target um, by 2030. Um, they were sort of ridiculed as being, you know, economic wrecking sort of policies by the um, coalition government. But funnily enough, they've actually admitted that 50% renewables are going to be achieved in the, even under their lack of policy. So presumably you'll be going a bit harder than 50% now that it's um, the path is, um, well, we're going to get there anyway, so you don't actually do anything to, to, to reach that target and also on electric vehicles if with your fbt and um, the last policy was based mostly around fleets and encouraging fleets with your fbt exemption that's going to make it a bit of a no-brainer for fleets so surely 50 percent um, evs will be a bit of a no-brainer well um if the, the policies I, I agree with you will work i don't think we therefore need an ev target and the problem <laughs> with that just in terms of the to be frank with you the raw politics last time um and i say this with complete hindsight is that the 50% target enabled the Liberals to point, it, point to it as a mandate, to point to it as some sort of compulsory government edict that 50% of cars would be uh, EVs. Now, of course, that was complete nonsense, was never never the case, couldn't be the case, completely, un, you know, completely unrealistic. If you wanted it to be the case, it was never the intention. But they got away with it. Morrison was able to say, you know, 50% EVs will mean the end of the weekend. It's complete garbage, as we all understand but it was pretty effective. So I prefer the levers, the powerful levers, um, bringing the, 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 cho the, the cost of EVs down, and I paint it as a choice. You know, I want, I want Australians to have more effective choice. At the moment, there are a lot of people who love an EV, but they can't afford one um, because the cost is high. We don't get enough affordable EVs into Australia. Um, compared to other countries, uh, you know, EVs are a lot more competitive. We, manufacturers just aren't bringing the affordable ones here because the policy settings aren't right. So... I prefer to look at it through a choice prism, uh, providing the policy framework to encourage more affordable EVs into Australia and giving people that choice.
Mm. Longer term targets for a 1.5 degree um, outcome, um, we kind of recognise that we'll probably need to get net zero emissions well before 2050, at least from the industrialised countries. Um, it's hard enough getting an agreement over 2050. Um, how hard is it going to be to actually bring forward that target, as the science suggests? Uh, well, you know, we're committed to net zero by 2050, but as I said, we're going to have a strong roadmap to get there. And look, I, I, I anticipate a strong partisan fight about that. You know, I fully anticipate, you know, climate change being front and centre at the next election and a, and a strong partisan Barney about our roadmap to get to 2050. Um, but I'm absolutely determined to make the case, as I said at the outset, that actually a strong roadmap is in our national interest, our economic interest and the interest of our regions. You know, it is, I, I completely reject this sort of identity politics and we see it almost daily, you know, from the Liberals and Nationals, dividing Australians between uh, inner-city dwellers who allegedly care about climate change and rural dwellers who pay the price fraction on climate change. It's not true. It's offensive. Um, it's, not it's not an accurate reflection of the views of rural and regional Australia, in my experience. You know, um, Armadale Council, in the heart of Barnaby Joyce's electorate, declared a climate emergency in 2019. Farmers get it. Um, they're seeing their incomes fall today. Farming comes full because of climate change today. They understand the need for action. They understand the opportunities. So we've got to take that argument robustly up to the coalition, but I do expect it to be robust. Mm. Uh, look, far farmers, I, we, we interviewed a farmer and there's a, a lot of people signed up in the farming community for climate change action and their incomes are down. I can support that. Just as a footnote, as I said, my mum was the mayor of Armadale and my dad was a state member. Armadale's always been the um, Labor side of that electorate, so the climate emergency there doesn't necessarily reflect what what a farmer at Walker would think. But that's sure, that's but a complete. Still, but still, it's not in the city. It's not in the city of Melbourne, David. Is my problem. no no it's, no, Chris. We don't, hold, we don't hold the state seat there. We don't hold the federal seat there. It's been a while since there was a Labor member for uh, Armadale. Um, I think uh, 1988 was the last time we had a Labor member for Armadale. So. Uh, um, it's been a while, so it's not socialist central. No, no, I, I agree with you. And uh, I was going to make the additional point, as you have made, uh, that it's going to see $10 billion of wind and solar Correct. investment in the New England Renewable Energy Zone. Uh, and, and, and hopefully everyone will see uh, a lot of benefits of that. The other thing, I guess, the point that I keep when I listen to Angus Taylor, and it's funny, I did a lot of reading about politics, and I was going to ask you about marginal seats and how, how climate change will sell on them, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to ask about the cost of climate change, which is the way that the Liberals always paint it, that every, everything, uh, it's going to cost us a lot to, to have this policy or this tax. Um, uh, and, and you've talked in terms of the ec economy and giving people choices, which I think is the... Uh, myself is a good way forward uh how are you going to talk about the benefits of the whole policy broadly not just talk about it but be able to demonstrate how this transition to a, a wind and solar energy place with hydrogen or whatever it is is, is it's actually going to leave australia better off yeah well that's the that's um the key job uh and that requires thorough analysis uh which we will do and and keep doing and release of the impacts of our policies a thorough analysis of the cost of inaction. And we said that at the last election. Uh, again, this is all in hindsight. We said the cost of inaction is greater than the cost of action. But you can't just say it. Uh, you've got to have the backing for it. Now, we all know that's true. We know that, you know, going back to Sir Nicholas Stern's review, you know, a long time ago, that's, 
Uh, it's been the case since then, uh, but we haven't been able to win that argument. Uh, and we've also got to win the argument that it's good for the different parts of the economy, not just that it's good for the cities. Um, and, you know, uh, we mentioned a carbon price before. I make this point. There will be a carbon tax in Australia, but it won't be put on by us. It'll be put on against us uh, by the rest of the world uh, through the form of carbon tariffs um, unless we act, you know, uh, Angus Taylor and Scott Morrison say we're lobbying against the carbon tariffs. Well, okay, fine. Uh, it would be, I, I would respectfully suggest, more effective if we improved our policy so we wouldn't be subject to them, even if they come in, which they are likely to do. I would just, um, we mentioned Barnaby Joyce, um, or at least New England, his electorate. Um, he, what do you make of his um, ascendancy back to the throne of the National Party? He's talking now about putting a nuclear power station on the back of a truck and powering towns like Armidale and Inverell. Does that make it an easier task for you or a more difficult one? Uh, look, uh, look uh, I, think, I think it makes it sharper. Um, you know, obviously I um, agree with Barnaby Joyce about very, very, li- very little. I can't think of anything we do agree on apart from maybe the fact that the sun comes up in the morning. I can't think of anything else we'd agree on. And maybe even that on some days we'd find a way to have an argument about. But, um, but you know, he's, he's, we shouldn't underestimate his sort of retail capacity to sell a simple life. You know, um, uh, he, he's good at that. And he's done that for a long time. Uh, we have, I have, a more complex truth uh, to communicate. And uh, that has a higher degree of difficulty. I don't shy away from it. Um, I relish it and I relish taking the argument, as I said, you know, right, right where it's hardest into rural and regional Australia where they have just sort of misled for so long. But I think people are up for that conversation. So, Giles, I wouldn't say uh, Barnaby Joyce's elevation makes it easier or harder. It does make it sharper because he's just so out there. You know, he's prepared to say anything, basically. He's promoting nuclear. He's promoting a coal-fired power station, which they tried last time. And, you know, all we've had is a fraudulent $3 million feasibility study for uh, for Collinsville. Um, and, you know, we're just with some movie we've seen before, there will be no coal, new coal-fired power stations built in Australia. One side of politics is honest about that. The other side of politics is dishonest. Um that's just that's just the argument we've got to win, and uh, I back. I, I'm prepared to back honesty as the winner, but it, I'm not suggesting it's going to be always easy. The Greens have also suggested um, uh, uh, put out an olive branch to suggest um, some sort of cooperation in a future government. It worked pretty well last time with Gillard and Bob Brown, and Christine Milne. Um, would you try it again? No, no. Um, you know, the next Labor government uh, will be. We're working very hard for a majority Labor government. And, uh, you know, Labor will govern. You may not have a choice. Well, we'll govern alone or not at all. But, you know, there are, there are areas where we can work with the Greens. There are areas like, you know, we worked together to disallow the arena regulation a couple of weeks ago because we have, you know, we agree on that. And so obviously where there's elements of agreement, um, we will vote together. Um, and where there's areas of disagreement, we'll, we'll differ. Um, and, you know, in election time, we're up against each other. You know, I'll say this about the Greens. You know, they're trying to take seats off us. Okay, that's their right in a democracy. Um, it's I don't see it as a pathway to defeating the Liberals um, to you know remove, you know Tanya Plibersek or Anthony Albanese or Josh Burns um, from the Parliament. But you know, they they in there and they're fighting for those seats. And fair enough. But um, no, no, uh, we've ruled out uh, any sort of arrangement like that with the Greens. I understand why it's in the Greens' best interest to, you know, promote it. Um, but it's not something we're interested in. A Labor government. Uh, you know, and we'd welcome the green support on on good climate change legislation when I introduce it as climate change minister. 
Um, I'm not too sure if David's got any other questions, but my final one is just about electric vehicles. You talked about the policy. What about your personal choices? Have you got to experience a one of the? Um, I think there's one EV in the uh, in the federal um, Comcar fleet. Um, are you going to ruin your own weekend by buying an electric vehicle? I don't have what, what are your plans there? <laughs> I have driven in EVs. I've, you know, as in, in this job, I've spent a bit of time visiting EV uh, facilities, and and I've driven a couple, and they're very impressive. I don't have an EV yet. I'm sure my next car will be an EV. Um, I, I'm sort of uh, gradually approaching 50, um, so uh, still time for a midlife crisis. So I'm thinking about a motorbike. I thought you guys might be the go-to people to, um, you know, send me in the right direction for which electric motorbike I should get. I don't think I could get the Harley-Davidson Livewire. I think that's out of my price range. Um, it's, 50, it's 50 grand, but we did do a video this week about the Evoke motorcycles, which is about 14 or 15 grand. So, or in my yeah. price range and you know i'm thinking i'm thinking you guys might be the go-to people to um you know advise me if i am going to have a midlife crisis to make it a carbon neutral one and uh, the evoke is on my list i'm I'm thinking but am i I on the right track with that thinking i think you're on the right track with that thinking but don't take my my word for it i had a a test ride on it the other um the other week actually and um my skills as a motorcycle rider aren't very great so i sort of wobbled up the hill and wobbled back down again Enough, well, but, you know. The last time I was on a motorbike, I think I was 18. So uh, I will take. I'll probably have to go back. To, <laughs> I'll probably have to go back to the my drive. My daughter's learning to drive at the moment. I'm teaching her, but I've probably got to go back to the driving school and, and learn how to drive a motorbike myself. <laughs> oh dear. So, oh, anyway. so, 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 Chris, my, I guess my final question is just about uh, divisions. I, you know, to me, we've seen that um, younger people uh, are very supportive of climate change and they're more supportive of the kind of uh, seats that Sally uh, Stegall won. And, you know, the Greens uh, want to win in Victoria and stuff like that. And um, how do you make the Labor Party represent? a representative party that people are going to have confidence for and how important is climate change and, and uh, just energy policy? Let me call it energy policy oh. rather than climate change with, with, within that overall uh, image of Labor that you hope people will vote for. Uh, with, with honesty. And that means, that means you know, I, I have, like most politicians, I have sort of a, a basic speech that I give um, at general events. And it is the same whether I'm talking to, you know, Lean the Labor Environmental Action Network in Melbourne, or if I'm talking to a bunch of coal miners in in Gladstone, uh, I say the same things. Now that can sometimes mean some difficult conversations. It sometimes means that you know people at the environmental forums, um, you know, come at me from a particular angle, and they come at me from a different angle in um, Gladstone. But I have the same answers, and that is that the world is changing. Um, we need to respond to that change. It's in our economic interest to do so. And that's how we'll win the, the case for good climate change action in Australia, not by lecturing people in Queensland that their jobs have to go, by bringing them with us. And I say that at the environmental forums. You know, um, We can all agree on this. We've got to make this economic case. You know, We've got to make the economic case for them. And they are right because you and I think that climate change is an existential threat. We're right. But if somebody thinks that action on climate change will cost them their job, it is a more direct existential threat to them. And they are right too. So we have to bring those people with us, not demonise them, not tell them they're wrong, not moralise to them, but bring them with us with a bright and optimistic story for the future, which happens to be based in fact. And I think we can win that argument, um, but it means 
a, a, a laser-like focus on consistency and honesty and saying the same thing wherever we are, even if it leads to some difficult conversations. It means making, as I keep saying, making that economic case for action, not just the moral case, um, because, you know, we've tried the moral case. We've won, we've won not enough elections. Uh, we need to win the economic case as well. Um, and on, the, on your point about division, sure, it's a challenge for, for Labor. Of course it is. We, we are a broad church. We represent, represent traditional blue-collar workers who, you know, work in traditional industries. But, you know, let's not pretend this is a one-way street. The coalition holds Dawson and Leichhardt and they hold Kuyong and Wentworth, you know, um, and uh, it's a challenge for them as well. They get away with it, I think. They get away with it with you know, eff- effectively dis- dishonesty because the urban liberals say, well, I'm committed to net zero by 2050. I'm for renewables, but they're members of government, which isn't. So uh, that, that, that's a task for us to, to win that argument. Uh, but I think if they can hold uh, Dawson and Wentworth, then we can hold uh, Grandler and we can win Capricornia. You know, we can do that. Um, but it does require that fundamental honesty and commitment to our national interest, which happens to align with uh, strong action on climate as the core of our policy. But I do think climate will be important in the next election, and I do think it is important for um, you know making the case that Australia needs a change, we need a fresh approach, because we've had now uh, eight years of coalition and it's been a, almost now a wasted decade. Chris, thanks very much for talking to Energy Insiders, at least at least on my behalf. I'll hand back to Charles. <laughs> I've got one last question, Chris. You said before, um, at, right at the start, a very, very brief question at the end. Um, you said before that um, the, the coalition, or many of them, were scared of wind and solar, didn't know why. Have a stab at it, though. Is it because of ideolo- ideology, ignorance, or is it sort of funding? And, and, and why is this fear also shared by so many in mainstream media? Look, I just, I just think it comes down to old-style prejudice. You know, Keith Pitt says, he, he actually said this, you know, you probably heard him. I, 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 I thought this, this astounded me even for him and even for them. He said, you shouldn't have to look out the window to decide whether you can turn the dishwasher on to see if it's sunny outside. I mean, the guy hasn't heard of the term storage or batteries uh, or pumped hydro or hydrogen or anything. Um, you know, they say the wind doesn't always shine and... Sorry, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Yeah, that's true. The rain doesn't always fall either, but we drink water. Uh, We've found a way to store it. We can do the same with renewables, um, but they just don't get it. Now, there's just enough, as I said at the outset, Giles, there's enough of them to be an effective veto over good policy. That has been the case since 2013, will continue to be the case. Um, I could sit here all day and work out why they just don't get it. I just prefer to go out and make the case for a change of government and get them out of any capacity to hold Australia back for a day longer than we otherwise have to put up with. So, Chris Brown, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. We do hope to get you back when the, I guess, when the election's called and your policies are unveiled, and uh, we'll have a chat about them then. Right, look forward to it. I'll be back. No worries. That was Chris Bowen, Labor's energy and climate spokesman. Uh, David, um, very interesting interview. Uh, Chris has clearly uh, across the subject, speaks very well. If on one side of the political divide we have technology, not taxes, we seem to have here policies, not targets. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, Possibly the most uh, uh, interesting thing Chris said was that he listens to our podcast, Giles. But I mean, uh, I almost I almost didn't pay attention after he said that. I was (laughs) too high as a balloon. But anyhow, 
Look, no, uh, what he did say uh, wasn't what I, exactly what an economist, theoretical economist would have said, but I think the basic messages that he got across, namely that it's uh, uh, important to give people choices uh, as much as forcing things on them and make those choices attractive uh, and make the economics work is the stuff that for an opposition party is probably exactly appropriate. Yes. Well, you can't completely dodge the idea of targets altogether because the Paris um, Agreement does require of Australia to have an interim target by 2030. And as he mentioned before, in reference to Angus Taylor and the coalition government, um, to actually increase that target. But um, Labor went into the last election with a 45% reduction target by 2030. That was sort of branded as ridiculous by the coalition government. But the reality is, and just to meet the science, just to catch up with everybody else in the world, it's probably going to be even more ambitious than that one, really. Yes. Well, so they, the, the policies themselves were probably uh, OK last time around. I thought they were good at the time, but uh, the marketing of them was absolutely atrocious. We got this comment about the cost, which were, at which the Labor Party was never able to answer, even though there were plenty of good answers for it. Uh, and just in general, you know, Shorten, in my opinion, was very unpopular. And it turned out that Scott Morrison was very popular, if you look at the analysis of the numbers. And, and the result was that uh, an election that Labor ran a very poor campaign on from a strong position, uh, almost expecting that all they had to do was turn up, they actually ended up losing to, to the guy that was better on the day and climate change has in part made the fall guy, whereas in fact the analysis shows that climate change was in that election and is in almost every election a winning position for the Labor Party but it is not the dominant one. The dominant uh, thing is nearly always about the economy uh, or most of the time and then taxes, and, you know, law and order and immigration. Mm. Uh, anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. What we're here to talk about is what Bowen said, which is essentially uh, to be a small target in a way and to uh, try and bring everyone along on the journey by making it clear, which all of us really think that Australia has a great energy resource in renewables uh, and can continue to be um, uh, a low-cost place to produce energy-intensive products, and it can probably still be an energy exporter to the extent that Asia will need to continue to import energy. Well, it could be argued that all they need to do really is to do what South Australia did a decade ago with the renewable energy target, and that was simply to make themselves a presentable place for investors to go to. South Australia Labor government never actually announced a renewable energy target until it was absolutely clearly obvious that that target was going to be met. They simply said, come here, we like your technology, we want to um, evolve, we want to progress, um, and we're happy to take your money. And they didn't spend a single dollar and didn't send a single policy to actually support it. So... Um, um, well, South, South Australia had a great wind resource. That was that was the, that was the thing that was always the attraction for it. And I think the signal that the New South Wales government has sent uh, is is also going to be very effective. And I think that you could use the uh, renewable energy target and have it qualify for the emissions reduction fund, and you could have a, a de facto carbon policy uh, and price without actually ever announcing it. You know, I think this, you've just got to be clever and crafty in the way that you get your, you get your goals achieved. And that, that's what marks a good leader out. But we'll have to wait and see how it plays. 
Well, let's hope so. And what we should probably mention is that it's probably some of the policies that Chris Bowen as, as treasurer did take to the um, to the um, to the election last time, which may well have actually caused their problems and things like changes to superannuations and and, and some of the tax changes. But look, let that be for the moment. Um, great that Chris and his team listen to our podcast. Um, one lot that clearly don't. Uh, very often don't pay attention, is the board from AGL. They were, in, in explaining the details of their demerger this week, they said that they were really surprised by the pace of the renewable energy transition. They must have been spent too much time listening to Sky News. Um, what did you make of the uh, demerger details, Gas? You've written a very good analysis. Uh, um, oh, oh, sorry, I said Gas instead of David. You've written a very good analysis, David, which points out that they've probably still got too much ca- gas, even if they uh, have gotten coal into another entity. Um How's it all going to turn out? Well, we don't know how it's all going to turn out. Uh, it's, it's hard. The management that's there now have been dealt a pretty bad hand by the people that bought the coal generation in the first place. And, of course, the coal, everyone thought coal generation was, a, was wonderful when uh, 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 Hazelwood closed and power prices went through the roof. And the same analysts, I mean, an- analysts can be very bitchy uh, at that level and they're very full of themselves. I know I've been one. Uh, um, and they never make mistakes. It's only management that ever get things wrong. Uh, and, and uh, you, you know, they were all calling for AGL to do share buybacks and stuff when power prices were very high and saying it didn't have enough debt. And now they've turned around and said it's got too much debt and so on. Well, more full management for actually paying any attention to them. The, the, the best management of the best companies I've ever seen pretty much ignore share market analysts and know for themselves what's the right thing to do and just get on with doing it and let the analysts come along for the journey afterwards and finally end up promoting it off their own bat. As far as AGL goes, it's, it's, it's got the coal generation. Uh, that, the sites may end up having a value. You know, when you've got lots of transmission running into a point, there's wind and solar farms that would love to have that now. Um, uh, and so you may be able to do something with that trans- free transmission access. That's an option. Um, as for new AGL, it just has to run on a journey of trying to sell lots of products. And I think it, it, the journey it's on at the moment seems to be moving away from energy altogether and into things like telecommunications and the like. Now, that's a, 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 at the t- very much at the beginning, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. But can't, it's hard to get too excited, to be honest, but it's, it is cheap. One of the things they can do at those um, coal generation sites, as you mentioned, they've got plenty of transmission. They could do battery storage, and clearly um, most people who own coal generators and baseload power stations are thinking of exactly that. AGL has talked about battery storage at each of its major sites, as has Energy Australia and Origin Energy. Now, batteries, um, look, uh, we can't talk too long because the podcast has already gone well, but some really interesting developments in battery storage recently um, over the last week, I think, David. One, the um, confirmation from my EMO that the fine-tuning um, well I'm actually talking about inverted technologies rather than just battery storage but the fine-tuning of solar inverters in North Queensland has solved the system strength issues um, we've got PowerLink talking about using batteries um, to maintain system strength around the grid as more and more renewables come online um, people are talking about not just grid forming inverters which we've talked about before but virtual synchronous, synchronous machines which is the overlay of software on top of the grid inverters which makes them able to sort of talk to other machinery on the grid and sort of act as a as um, um, kind of like a buffer or um, I just can't think of the right word now um, and new projects going in um, at um, Rio Tinto's Tom Price as well um, by Linter at 
um, Port Hedland and Carafa. So this is actually quite critical because we saw in the discussion around the ESB um, proposals this week, old technology people like Trevor St. Baker saying we have to have synchronous generation and all the new technology people saying, well, we actually don't and we can move on to these new technologies and we're just sort of finding more and more proof that this actually is possible. That's right. And uh, I should have mentioned that Transgrid's Walgrove battery is uh, uh, 50 megawatts an hour and a half is getting very close to proof of concept as well. So I think what you described very well, Giles, is that the industry in Australia is coming to accept that batteries are an important tool in the toolbox, uh, arguably the most important tool. I've, I've said it once, I've said it about 50 times that they are the founda- enabling foundation of, 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 a, um, of, the, of the future grid. Uh, and I think the fact that they're running big uh, iron ore mines in West Australia, which are incredibly valuable and using batteries essentially to to, to run the electricity that uh, that gets to those iron ore mines tells you that this must work. I mean, no one's going to risk anything in an iron ore mine that isn't going to work. And it's just a matter of scaling up that uh, industry knowledge now to make all these uh, virtual synchronous machines, which is a battery and a grid forming inverter together in a tuned way, talk to each other so that we can get away, we can be confident we can move away from coal-fired generation altogether. And as I said, I think that that's, that's where we're moving to fairly quickly. And batteries, as we all know, have got this huge stack of services. Right now, they're finding their home in this um, in this um, uh, system control uh, sphere. But uh, pretty soon, they'll be moving into doing uh, energy arbitrage and storage as well. Indeed. David, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Um, apologies to listeners for David's uh, slightly lower quality recording this evening. He's been um, in another yet another blackout in inner city, Sydney, um, been operating by torchlight and on his iPad and iPhone. Thank you very much to Chris Bowen for joining the podcast uh, this week, and uh, we hope to interview more political figures over the coming weeks. Thanks also to our sponsors, of course, Pylon and Evergen. Thanks also to our listeners for tuning in once again. Please do give us your feedback and we'll be back again next week. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.